We make decisions every day, but these days, those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. More than six months into the pandemic, COVID-19 is still not under control. With cases continuing to rise, a potential vaccine is a source of hope for many who are struggling with no foreseeable end to the day-to-day anxiety of grappling with a pandemic. Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Moderna are three of the companies hoping to develop a vaccine in the next few months. And while the successful development of a safe vaccine on such an expedited timeline would be a momentous accomplishment, significant challenges would still remain to getting that vaccine widely distributed and taken. I can't imagine anyone with a better grasp on these challenges than my guest today. Jeff Kindler is a healthcare executive, investor, and advisor who has held leadership positions at some of the world's most recognized companies. Jeff was formerly the chairman and CEO of Pfizer, the world's largest research-based biopharmaceutical company. He's currently CEO of Centrexion Corporation, a biotech company. And he's also the global chairman of the GLG Institute, a business at GLG that serves senior operating executives by connecting them with former C-level executives to accelerate their professional development. At GLG, I head up the Institute, where I work closely with Jeff, and I'm proud to call him a mentor and a friend. Welcome to Deciding Factors, Jeff. Great to have you on. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. So can you start just by explaining the role that pharmaceutical companies are playing in developing those therapies and vaccines? Sure. Well, you know, if you think about uh, mass vaccinations, the idea for that really got started early in the 20th century into the 30s and really took off with the polio vaccines in the 50s. And from the very beginning, the ability to discover, develop, and distribute vaccines required a strong partnership among uh, academic researchers at universities, governments, and industry. But the biopharmaceutical companies really have always played and continue to play a very unique and critical role in the research, development, manufacturing, distribution. All of these activities, if you think about it, they're very expensive, they're very risky, they involve a lot of failures, and normally many, many years of effort and many billions of dollars. You know, uh, vaccines are are essentially living organisms. The science is hard, they're not easy to discover or test, they're not easy to make, they're not easy to distribute to the hundreds of millions of people that need them. So when a new infectious disease emerges, like COVID as an example, The effort to find it really requires billions of dollars. It's fraught with failures, and it really requires a strong partnership among the government, academics, non-governmental organizations, and the pharmaceutical companies are an essential part of that. Specifically with COVID, what is the process that the government uses in determining which pharmaceutical company it will partner with? And then how do the pharmaceutical companies weigh the risks and rewards of engaging in those partnerships? Yeah, well, I think it's important to start by recognizing there are relatively few companies that make vaccines anymore. You know, as recently as the 1970s, there were 25 or so companies. Now there are really only four or five. So as we sit here today, about 80% of vaccine sales come from about five multinational companies. And consequently, the government doesn't actually have that many different companies that it can partner with to do this. The government will look for private companies that in some cases, like in the case of the AstraZeneca vaccine, they're partnering with Oxford. Uh, Pfizer is partnering with a small German uh, biotech company. They need companies that can demonstrate the capability of developing these vaccines and ultimately distributing them and manufacturing them. And if you are a pharmaceutical company, how do you weigh the risks and rewards of engaging, right? 
You can decide whether or not to take funding for your actual research and development of the drug, which some companies have done because the discovery and development of vaccines is very expensive and time-consuming and risky. So some companies accept government support. And in those contexts, there's often conditions associated with that kind of support regarding access to the vaccines, pricing, and so forth. Now, some cases, and Pfizer's an example of this, they don't take that form of government funding for research and development, but they do accept an order for the uh, vaccines once they're produced. Could you give us a little bit of history and background? Like, why are vaccines historically so complicated to develop? Why does it take so long versus, for example, therapies? As I said earlier, they're living organisms. You know, the basic concept of a vaccine is to introduce into the immune system an antigen that will trigger the body's immune response so that it will recognize the infection and resist it in the future. That's uh, really hard science. What's unique about COVID is the extraordinary partnerships around the world between governments and companies and non governmental organizations like the Gates Foundation. Until this situation, the fastest a vaccine was developed was in the case of mumps in the 1950s, and that took four years, and that was considered very fast. So this uh, has the potential, I think, to be maybe one of the greatest scientific achievements in the history of the world. Is there any reasonable chance that the vaccine won't be developed according to that timeline? Let's talk about what we mean by the timeline. Now, all the indications that we've heard so far are that uh, the data is looking good, it's looking effective, it's looking safe, and we can all hope that that proves the case. But yeah, it's theoretically possible that we'll have some setbacks along the way, and some of the more exciting uh, vaccines that seem to be imminent might not work out. You know, that's, Eric, that's just the nature of drug development. There's a lot of failures before you get to successes, and this is very hard stuff. I was wondering if you could talk about how you think those CEOs that are developing the COVID vaccine specifically are balancing those pressures. And some of those pressures, just to name a few of them, are obviously shareholder pressure. They you know, want to get a good ROI on the investment that they're making, unprecedented levels of political pressure. Obviously, the public safety, uh, they want to make sure that they get a vaccine to market as quickly as possible to save lives. They want to make sure that that vaccine is safe so it doesn't have harmful side effects. So how would you describe those pressures and, and how the current CEOs are navigating them? One of the most important jobs of a CEO is balancing the interest of different stakeholders. And the bigger the company, the more global, the more complicated the business it's in, the more different kinds of stakeholders you have, as you suggested. There's no perfect way to make everyone happy. But when it comes to the vaccines, you have to start with the absolute table stakes, which are safe and effective treatments. Frankly, politics, you know, I guess you have to deal with it to some extent because it's the world we live in. But uh, political pressures have to be just ignored. So do pharmaceutical companies anticipate a large return on investment when it comes to developing vaccines? Vaccines have historically not been as profitable as other types of drugs. A vaccine is used maybe once a year, sometimes in some cases even less than that, whereas other medicines are taken daily or weekly or monthly. The revenues of even the most successful vaccines are usually smaller than the revenues of some very significant drugs. The diseases, the infectious diseases that vaccines address are much more common in the developing world. 
where a vaccine maker necessarily works to make those vaccines available with essentially no profits. There's very strong regulations around vaccines. As I said before, there were periods when there were significant lawsuits around vaccines that uh, resulted in some of these companies leaving that business. But that being said, obviously, these companies wouldn't be in the business if they didn't believe it provided a fair return to their shareholders. And when uh, they generate successful vaccines, uh, they do. But the pricing is more constrained because the government is usually the single largest purchaser, which creates kind of a functional cap on prices. So, you know, compared to other aspects of drug development, it can be less profitable. Jeff, can you walk us through how the FDA approval process works? There's multiple phases of studying before you get to the point where you can even submit something. You do preclinical research to try to find the right antigen that will induce an immune reaction. By the way, in normal times, that itself can take several years. What's really nothing short of amazing about what's happened with COVID is that to get to the point I just described usually takes seven, eight years and multiple billions of dollars. We're sitting here today, you and I, Eric, with Pfizer having already enrolled 40,000 patients, Moderna, 30,000 patients, some of the others, uh, large numbers as well, and very close to being able to submit it for approval in less than a year. That's truly a miracle. They also have to demonstrate that they can manufacture it consistently and at scale in large numbers, which itself is a significant undertaking. So even before you get to the FDA, you have to meet that very high bar. The advisory committee meeting that happened on Thursday is where the FDA assembles uh, more than a dozen experts, professionals, scientists, consumer advocates, And every one of them has to be certified not to have any conflicts of interest. So their only interest is in science and doing the right thing for patients. They have an open hearing. The entire public can listen to it. They talk about what's going to be required for approval. There's all kinds of interesting and complicated and challenging issues, but they're supervised by an agency that is staffed with long-term civil servants quality scientists, dedicated people. And in this case, they're led by uh, an individual named Peter Marks, who's the director of the Center for Biologics Evaluation Research, a man of high integrity, who's made it be known that if, uh, if he feels that he's being pressured for some political reason to approve something before it's right, he has publicly stated that he would resign. But I think what's important is that this process is pretty transparent. The scientists will ultimately have access to the data because many of these companies in the agency are making public or will be making public data that normal times they might not. I have absolute confidence that the companies themselves will not submit uh, for approval any vaccines that they themselves are not comfortable are safe and effective. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about once we get a vaccine, which again, we are all rooting for to happen as quickly as possible. Once the vaccine has been developed, how do manufacturers think about setting the price? Many, many of the worst infectious diseases afflict developing countries. And for a long time, there have been global organizations and the Gates Foundation has been a leader in this that have worked together with pharmaceutical companies to provide access at effectively no cost to those countries and to those people that can't afford them. On the other hand, in order to be able to do that, uh, the companies have to be able to at least recover their costs and arguably make a profit 
from those that can afford uh, to pay for them. Otherwise, they can't be in business. So the pricing is going to vary depending on the company and the arrangements it may have made with the government. So, for example, in some cases, the government provided research support. And in exchange, the government will expect consideration around pricing and profits. We don't have a lot of visibility right now into the contracts that the government entered into, so we don't know the specifics of that. Some of the pharma companies have expressly declined government research subsidies, specifically so as to be able to maintain uh, some degree of freedom to control their IP and their prices, their intellectual property and their pricing. But even in those cases, uh, because again, the government is by far the most important purchaser of vaccines, uh, they enter into multi-billion dollar contracts. Again, Pfizer is an example of this, in which the government pre-orders hundreds of millions of doses of the vaccine at a negotiated price. Let's just use the United States as an example. The government has already said their goal is to get 300 million doses and to provide it at, at no or minimal cost to many people that can't afford it, and possibly at, at some cost to those that can, depending on insurance and things like that. Can you talk about the actual kind of technical role that pharmaceutical companies will play in U.S. distribution and in global distribution, like actually getting it out to the public? So much of that will be done by the private sector. The distribution will not necessarily be done by the pharmaceutical companies themselves. There are other companies that do that today with respect to both drugs and vaccines, but the pharmaceutical companies are part of that process together with the distributors. There's an entire ecosystem involved in the manufacture of things like vials and syringes that the government is also uh, helping to stand up. The government and other companies are actually building facilities as we speak to manufacture and to be distribution hubs. And again, the, the private sector is uniquely capable of doing this in a way that the government isn't. Now, that being said, the government, when it orders vaccines, adds it to the national stockpile, which we heard a lot about earlier in the virus situation as it pertained to things like PPE. And so the government will be stockpiling through the uh, Defense Department, the agency called uh, BARDA. They'll be stockpiling a lot of this. The pharmaceutical companies will have a leading role in the manufacture and distribution. It's going to be a big challenge because we start off with the proposition that a very substantial number of people, some estimate as many as 30 percent, are just uh, what you might characterize as anti-vaccination. This is a significant problem, and it was discussed uh, at the advisory committee, and it's been discussed quite a lot because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, to get to herd immunity, you need a very significant proportion of the population to be vaccinated. I'm guessing that there will be a massive public education effort undertaken both by the government and others to get people to take their vaccines. It will be a challenge just as something as simple as mask wearing has been a challenge. So, Jeff, would you take the first dose of the COVID vaccine and would you advise for your children to take it? If a vaccine is approved by the FDA and the science behind it is sufficiently transparent that the scientific community can vet it and the mainstream scientists agree with the FDA's conclusion that it's safe and effective, I would have no hesitation taking it or asking my family members to take it. Well, I think we can end it there. Jeff, uh, really, really appreciate your insights and you taking the time. I thought it was a, a great conversation. So thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Great to be with you. That was Jeff Kindler, the former chairman and CEO of Pfizer, the world's largest research-based biopharmaceutical company. 
Jeff explained how the complex science involved in creating vaccines often requires partnership among academic researchers, government, and industry. Due to these partnerships, Jeff told us, the COVID vaccine is being developed faster than any since the case of the mumps in the 1950s. And for skeptics who are reluctant to take a vaccine, Jeff expects the government to undertake a massive education campaign. To get to herd immunity, which Jeff stressed will be essential, you'll need a very significant proportion of the population to be vaccinated. We hope you'll join us next time for another in-depth interview with one of GLG's council members. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at glgroup.com if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Stay safe out there and thanks for listening.